If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. For weeks, I've been waking up early to sit at my computer and refresh the SCOTUS blog. It's a website run by a bunch of lawyers about the United States Supreme Court. It's the fastest place to hear about an opinion. Every day I wondered, is today going to be the day? Is this the day we're finally going to get a decision in Carpenter versus Murphy? The cases left to be decided dwindled down to 24, then to 20, then to 12, until only five were left. And then came Thursday, June 27th, the last day for decisions to come out. Finally, we'd know. No more waiting. I was sitting at my kitchen table in my pajamas with a cup of coffee in my hand and my browser open. I watched the last decisions of the term get announced. It was down to just one just Carpenter versus Murphy. Win, lose, or tie, we were about to find out. But turns out, I was wrong. Instead of screaming into the void, I recorded myself just moments after reading the news. Oh my God, I did not see this coming. So the Chief Justice just announced that Carpenter v. Murphy will be restored to the calendar for re-argument next term. So it's being re-argued. So there's no, so we don't know. There's no decision. Oh my God. Why? Like what, what needs to be re-argued? That's crazy. Now I've had a week to think about the postponement. I spoke to the attorney general from Muskogee Creek Nation and legal experts who followed the Supreme Court. And I'm back to share what I've learned so we can make sense of this surprise development together. What does it mean for the ultimate fate of this case? What does it mean for the five tribes in Oklahoma? And what the heck happens next? You're listening to This Land, a podcast about broken promises, tribal land, and murder. This year, the Supreme Court was supposed to decide whether half the land in Oklahoma is Indian country. But in a shocking twist, they postponed their decision until next year. The fate of this land still hangs in the balance. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Kevin Dellinger was on his way to a meeting when he got the news. As listeners of this podcast know, he's not only a Creek citizen, he's the attorney general for Muskogee Creek Nation. He spent the past three years preparing for the day the decision would come out. And then, after all that buildup, it didn't. So I was actually in the car when uh, I had the uh, my cell phone on and the staff was keeping me aware of what was uh, what was going down. I was driving, being safe, and, and then, of course, when I found out, and it was a good thing that I was not uh, only driving with one hand. Kevin was just as taken aback as I was. Neither of us saw this coming. Later in the day, I caught up with him so he could help me understand what this postponement means for his tribe and what happens next. 
How did you sleep last night, anticipating the decision coming out this morning? Actually, before last night, not knowing what's going to happen the next day or when the uh, if a decision would come down or when caused me a little bit of uh, unrest, I guess. But uh, for, for some reason last night, I actually was able to uh, get a decent night's sleep for once. And what's the mood at the tribe right now? What are what are people saying at Muskogee Creek Nation today? Well, I think people are just, um, uh, I, I think there's still a lot of question of, of why, and, and I don't know the answer to that. It's very seldom that uh, it is uh, continued over to the next term. So, yeah, it was a little bit of, uh, I, I don't want to say stressful, but uh, uh, just waiting. You know, when you're waiting to hear a decision on such an important case and, and such a uh, an important case to the nation and one that's, that uh, so many people have worked so hard on, um, you know, it's it's a, a bit of a, a nail biter, but um, we got through it and uh, we're preparing now to, to move forward and looking forward to the uh, the fall term. How do you feel about this this announcement in your gut? Do you think that it's a good sign or a bad one or too soon to tell? The way I look at it, I try to be optimistic. And uh, my, my thought is that maybe there's some more information we need to provide to the court and, and there's nothing wrong with that opportunity to do so. So um, I think whatever these outstanding issues may be, we just need to prepare for and and provide them with the answers that um, to the questions they're asking. And uh, I'm, I'm hopefully optimistic that decision would be uh, in the favor of, of Mr. Murphy and, and in favor of the, the Muscogee Creek Nation that our reservation boundaries have never been uh, disestablished. Do you think the Supreme Court has a harder time settling questions about federal Indian law? I would not want to uh, speculate on that. I, their opinion, I think, provided them with a, a nice roadmap of, of the Creek Nation and its history and uh, the, the fact that there was, was no evidence that the nation's reservation boundaries had ever been disestablished. And can you remind me what it means to disestablish a reservation? Is that basically just saying that the reservation is no longer there? Yeah, I, I think that's probably in its its simplest terms what that means. Um, you know, some type of, of action of Congress um, terminating the the reservation boundaries uh, or reservation or, uh, um, you know, there, there's explicit language, uh, terminate, cease to exist, basically do away with. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me because to me, that's a pretty black and white question, you know, either that language exists or it doesn't. And so given that, why do you think it's taking so much time for the Supreme Court to figure this case out? That's a good question. I think that's kind of the way I would see things. I think there's there's a test that's been established and it's uh, whether Congress ever took, uh, you know, the action uh, to disestablish a reservation boundary. And again, when doing an analysis of our history, um, and the uh, the treaties and the acts that we'd entered into, there, there's nothing that, that even suggests that. So what what is the main thing the Supreme Court will be answering next term when it takes it back up? I think one thing to remember is that this was a, a case that was not filed by the Muscogee Creek Nation. It was a, uh, a case involving, a uh, unfortunately, a, a very heinous crime of, of murder. And the question was, did the murder occur within a reservation or not, and that determines who had jurisdiction. And um, it, Muscogee Creek Nation uh, got involved because the question of our reservation boundaries came up, and his claim was that the crime occurred on uh, 
Indian country within the reservation boundaries of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And uh, when our boundaries came into question, that's when we had to uh, uh, realize we, we needed to get involved in the case. And could you talk to me some about why it's important for you for the Supreme Court and why it's important for Muscogee Creek Nation to affirm your reservation boundaries? Well, I think it goes back to uh, um, we've been removed from our homeland, our original homeland back east already. When we were forced to Oklahoma, we were told that this would be our, uh, you know, our reservation uh, for now and to eternity. We don't want to uh, lose our reservation boundaries again in our lands here. And, uh, you know, this this is our, our home now, and it's very important and special to us, and it's what sustains us. If anyone else could imagine having their their home or their homelands taken away from them, I think if you put it in that perspective, you understand why this is such an important decision for the nation. So now, at the end of all of this, with this surprise postponement, do you feel more or less hopeful about the final outcome? I'm still uh, hopeful and will be working uh, as hard as ever as we move forward and uh, hope for a uh, positive outcome for the, for the Muscogee Creek Nation. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it, between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Muscogee Creek Nation is optimistic and ready to fight. But I wanted to know what that fight actually means. What happens when a case is re-argued? As I was furiously scrolling through the SCOTUS blog that morning, trying to understand what just happened, I read this explanation. Given the complexity and splits in voting of so many of the decisions in the last two weeks, they may simply have run out of time to work this one out. I had to know more. So I called up the person who made that comment, Stephen Wormiel, law professor at American University. Thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to do it. What is it like to participate in the SCOTUS blog? Is it fun for you? Do you enjoy it? I do. Um, This actually, the last two weeks is the first time that I've live blogged um, when the court was deciding this was very exciting to me, um, very intense, particularly yesterday, the, the last day of decisions, because the questions were coming like, you know, a question every second or every two seconds. But it was very exciting. I enjoyed it. 
So as somebody who watches the Supreme Court very closely, was this outcome what you were expecting for the Murphy case? Um, no. Re-argument is not something that you kind of know to to expect unless it's the, I suppose, the rare case where there's something obvious that points in that direction. And, and that was not the case here, I think. Could you help give listeners a sense of how typical or how rare it is for a case to be re-argued? I mean, it's less than once a term. The reasons vary. It's more frequent, for example, when there's a change in the makeup of the court. There have been some famous, famous, famous re-arguments. Brown versus Board of Education was re-argued. Roe versus Wade was re-argued. Um, it was argued a second time before the court decided it. So it, you know, it happens. So basically, is the whole case being re-argued, or is it just like a certain part of it? Like the justices are just going to ask a very specific question that both sides are going to address. This is not the answer you wanted, but the short answer is we don't know. The court has issued no order other than the case is set for re-argument. Sometimes the court will issue an order that says the case is restored to the calendar for re-argument and the parties are instructed to do X. They didn't do that here. Um, So we have to assume, and the parties will have to assume, that they are basically starting from scratch and re-arguing the entire case. But it's important to keep in mind that the supplemental briefs that were filed, you know, after the court requested them were never part of the first argument, right? They came after the first argument. Yeah. And and so as the court re-argues the case, it has the opportunity to ask questions about the supplemental briefs, not just about the original questions. So it's not it's not simply a replay, you know, it's not a, a question of, well, gee, can't we just play a tape of the original argument? And the answer is no, there will be additional information being brought up in this new argument. And so what's the new timeline? So, you know, law professors have a joke that the answer to every question anybody asks in law school is it depends. Right. <laughs> um, and so I hate to do that to you, but the answer is it depends. And, and here's why. Um, the, the court will schedule the case for oral argument. One theory of what is going on is that they were working on a, an opinion. They were working out some differences, but they ran out of time. You saw how many splintered and divided decisions there were at the end of the term, which took up a lot of the court's time and attention and and may have been distracting from their ability to focus on other things. So one possibility is that they have a solution in mind. Maybe they even started writing an opinion that commands a majority, uh, but they just couldn't bring it in in time. I, f- I feel like you're saying that, like, they, they couldn't get, like, their term paper done in time and they asked for an extension. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's just so, it's so, um, I didn't even think about that as a possibility, but is that true that the Supreme Court can literally just run out of time in a term to get the decision that they want? Not very often, but, but not impossible. I mean, there's a, there's an arcane tradition at the court. It's not a rule. It's their own operating tradition that every argued case gets decided in the term in which it was argued. So if you can't finish it, you can't leave it hanging. You have to put it over for re-argument. And and who makes that decision? Is it does it have to be made by the majority of the justices? Can it just be made by the chief justice by himself? Definitely not the chief justice by himself. It it takes five votes to have a case reargued. For a case to be reargued, do the votes have to be a certain way? Like I've seen a lot of speculation online that this means oh they were in a four four or it means they were in a five three. Um, I, I, it, it's not certain, but I would say it's likely that it was not a 4-4 tie, um, because with a 4-4 tie, they could basically just let the case go and, and say, we're affirming the, the lower court. I feel like with the sort of like one sentence announcement from Justice Roberts, it felt like, you know, like when somebody like breaks up with you over text message and you're just like, what happened? Why? And it feels like so unsatisfying that we're not going to get more information. Will we ever know why this happened? So you're, you're missing an important point that is really critical in the justices' minds, and that is that it's not personal. <laughs> That's a really good point. I know. They don't care about how I feel. <laughs> we want, They're not going to tell us, but there are some signposts to look for. If they argue this case, you know, in the first week of October and decide it as one of the first decisions of the next term in November, early December, that tells you that that my suggestion, I think, is correct, that they were on their way to deciding the case but couldn't quite get there. If the case is argued early on and then, you know, if we were still in the same boat a year from now, waiting for the case on the last day of the term, then that tells you something else was, was going on, that they they were not well on their way to a resolution of the case. That's the best we're going to be able to do is try to read those signposts. Well, thanks again so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Talking to Stephen was really helpful, but I'm still trying to figure out what all this means. So I reached out to Matthew Fletcher for some guidance. You'll remember from previous episodes, Matthew is a law professor at Michigan State University and a citizen of Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. He was on vacation, but sent me back a voice memo with his thoughts. So the Murphy case was set for re-argument by the Supreme Court. The only time the court really issues an order to re-argue a case is if the case is of such national importance that it uh, runs out of time at the end of the term and just wants to hold it over for the next term. It did this in the Roe versus Wade case, for example. Um, Murphy is an important case for Indian law, but it is not that important in the grand scheme of things when it comes to the Supreme Court. It seems very odd that this case, of all the cases I heard by the court this year, 
would be held over for re-argument. My speculation is that it may be tied to the second round of briefing the court ordered after oral argument the first time. You may recall that the court asked for supplemental briefs on the question what the impact will be if the court holds in favor of um, Mr. Murphy and the Muscogee Creek Nation. It may be that they want to ask questions about the supplemental briefs that they received um, in another round of argument. I don't know, but it is very unusual. It doesn't really give us any indication as to what the likely outcome is going to be, uh, but it does suggest that the impacts of this case on on the state of Oklahoma, on Indian country in Oklahoma, are very important to the court. I'm not sure that that's a particularly good thing for the Mr. Murphy or the Muscogee Creek Nation, although it seems to me that the state of Oklahoma and the federal government haven't really made a very strong case that the impacts are really going to be all that far-raging or consequential. But, you know, apparently the court is doubly concerned about this case. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So both Matthew and Stephen think the extra briefs the Supreme Court wanted could be the reason they postponed the decision. That's the biggest clue we've got, that there's something in there the justices, a majority at least, wanted to ask more questions about. And those additional briefs focused on the practical implications of affirming our reservations, especially on criminal jurisdiction in the state. So maybe that's the question still hanging in the air. We may get more clues as the case moves forward, but we'll probably never know for sure. What happens next is we keep waiting as unsatisfying as that is. But the stakes of this case are still high, whenever it's finally decided. If the Supreme Court sides with Oklahoma, it could have a devastating ripple effect, not just for the five tribes, but for all of Indian country. It could change the rules the Supreme Court uses to determine whether or not a reservation exists. What the Supreme Court has said before is that only Congress can abolish a reservation. But remember Lisa Blatt, Oklahoma's lawyer? She couldn't pinpoint an act of Congress that did. So instead, she relied on circumstantial evidence to create a loophole. She argued that our reservations no longer exist because of the sheer volume of everything that has been taken from us. Here's Blatt in front of the Supreme Court. Every piece of paper, record book, uh, dollar bill or coin or property, their buildings, their furniture, their desk, everything was taken away from the tribes. So I don't know how they could be doing anything. Their taxes were abolished. Their tribal law was rendered unenforceable. She argued that we were left with nothing. Not one single absolute smidgen de minimis act of sovereignty over the land. And if the Supreme Court ultimately buys her argument it could set dangerous precedent, one that will affect more than just the five tribes. That's because arguably every tribe has had something, whether land, money, children, or papers, seized by the United States. Here's Riaz Kanji, lawyer for Muscogee Creek Nation. 
generally speaking, uh, Congress has told the tribes over time, you, your, your government will be structured in this fashion. Your membership will consist of the following. Uh, you will allow this mining and these easements on your land even if you don't want it. You will allow your children to be taken away and placed in boarding schools even if no parent would want that. The bottom line is if Murphy loses this case, more tribes could be in danger of losing their reservations. That's because American history is littered with examples of the U.S. taking things away from tribes. And that's why the stakes in this case are so high. The history of tribal land in the U.S. has mostly moved unforgivingly in one direction. Today, American Indian reservations make up only 2% of all land in the United States. That's about 55 million acres. For perspective, nearly 200 million acres is reserved for national forests. In other words, our government set aside more land for trees than for Indians. If Oklahoma wins this case, that history will just continue. But if the tribes win, it could be the largest restoration of Native land in U.S. history. That affirmation would be historic. We've known all along this land was still our reservations. But finally this country would acknowledge that too. It would be really easy to make a mistake here and to think that a victory for the tribes would return our land, would give it back to us. But that's not it. Despite Oklahoma's position in this case, despite everything that has been taken away from our tribes, our reservations were never abolished and you can't give back what already belongs to us. The battle for Native rights usually takes place in a vacuum. Precious few people outside of our communities are even aware of what's going on. But the issues that face Native Americans today run deep. And when it comes to the fight for tribal sovereignty, this case is just the tip of the iceberg. Right now in Oklahoma, Cherokee citizens are fighting to save our language from extinction and to save our air and water from ruin. Next week, we'll take you to a modern-day battleground for Cherokee sovereignty. It's a struggle few people in this country even know is going on. And so for me, this is home, and I don't want to leave it. But I also want to be able to breathe, and I also want to be able to drink clean water. What we're still fighting for next time on This Land. This Land is written and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation. From Crooked Media, Mukta Mohan and Tanya Sominator are the executive producers. From Neon Hum Media, Gabrielle Lewis is our producer, Catherine St. Louis is our editor, and Jonathan Hirsch and Vikram Patel are the executive producers. Sound design and mixing by Stephen LaRosa and Joseph Friedman of Wonder Boy Audio. Natalie Wren is our researcher. Our theme music is composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic. Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional production support from Fire Thief Productions, including Nathan Young, citizen of Delaware Tribes of Indians and Cherokee Nation, Jeremy Charles, citizen of Cherokee Nation, Shane Brown, citizen of Cherokee Nation, and Melissa Lukenbow. Special thanks this episode to Graham Lee Brewer, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.